I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that I record these episodes on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The interviews contained in this episode were recorded on Turabel and Jagara country. Along with my co-hosts, Michael Wilson and Rosie Ween, we pay our respects to Turabel and Jagara elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This is the last episode in our three-part series recorded at Oswater 2022. Hopefully this series has given you a taste of the Water for Development conversations from the conference, for those of us not lucky enough to be there in person. As always, our splendid Water Series hosts are Michael Wilson and Rosie Ween. Michael is Group Chief Executive at eWater Limited. Rosie is CEO of WaterAid Australia. You can access more information on the Australian Water Partnership in the show notes. I want to play you some audio now from Michael and Rosie's conversation with Rock Chiro from Sydney Water. Can you tell us a little bit about your water story? How did, how did you end up being the managing director of Sydney Water? Well, <laughs> that, that's, that's a good question. I'm, not, I'm going to give you the short version because I've actually spent my life in water or at least my professional life. Um, and, um, and, and I've uh, never left the, the water industry because this is just so much of a, a passion, I guess. But yeah, look, I've, I've had the pleasure to work in many different countries. Um, I've worked a few years in France. I've worked a long time in Estonia. I've worked in a number of different uh, countries in um, Eastern Europe. I've worked in Asia. I've worked in China, India, the Middle East, um, Southeast Asia, and Australia, which, uh, and I've been here for some time. So, but look, it's, it's such a, such a passion. And what's really interesting is that everywhere you go, you, you find the same I guess you find the same passion in, in the people working in the water industry. And everywhere you go, you really can see the impact that we can have on people's lives. And that's really what, you know, it, it, that's what attracted me. And that's what kept me in the water industry. That's, that's the impact we can have on people's lives. So, Rock, particularly drawing from your time working in developing countries. Um, we've got the, the Water SDG, uh, SDG 6, um, Water and Sanitation for All. What are some of the challenges that you, you have seen as unexpectedly hard to achieve in, in water management in uh, a developing country context? And what from the Australian context where we have resources, we, we have know-how, but we also don't get everything right. Do you think we can, we can match to some of those contemporary international water challenges? I think the, the challenges are, um, are probably a bit everywhere. In, in the developing countries, you know, there's no, there's no question, there are challenges and 
very often it's a lack of uh, focus and priority given to water where, you know, sometimes the, um, the telecommunication network is installed before people will be thinking about the water network or the sanitation um, infrastructure that you need to have. And then you start thinking, okay, is, it, is water given the right priority? And the answer is probably no. Now, um, question of planning, question of different things. I think um, what, what I've seen in a number of different um, countries, developing countries especially, was that very often the developed countries have tried to uh, apply exactly the same recipe that are existing in already developed countries. And that's, that's not the best way to, to do it because you can't, you know, you can't just replicate something that's existing elsewhere because water is such, such, such an essential part of life that it, it, it's part of the culture of, of, of any country. So you have to, to do things differently. And sometimes that um, means different technology. Sometimes that means different ways of, um, different ways of invoicing water or, or, or paying for water. Sometimes that's um, uh, all sort of different things. But one, one that is always critical is that um, it's really um, involving the community that, that will make it work. And, and, and if the local community is not involved in, uh, in, in, in the making, then usually it doesn't really work or it doesn't really last for very long. So, look, it's, it's, um, it's always a, a, a very... Um, a, a very important topic that unfortunately doesn't get the priority that it deserves. Uh, but water has an impact on everything from health to uh, education to uh, development of the industry to on, on everything. So it's really surprising how um, there's not more priority that is given to water. Absolutely. And as you reflect on that, the, the power of and importance of water and the changes that have happened in the water sector globally, what do you think are the, the key trends or patterns that you're seeing that, that most excite you that we will get water into those conversation and the priority that it needs? Well, look, I, th I think there, there are um, there probably a number of different things. Um, just, you know, if you think about the development of water in the developed countries, it was not done in one day. It, it, it was done over a few centuries. And, um, and, and there is today, there is probably a lot more flexibility in the way water can be done. So it's not anymore about big, large infrastructure, but there's a lot of, um, uh, possibility to do water in, in a completely different way that is uh, probably easier to implement. So, um, you know, where probably 50 years ago, um, creating water was about um, all well and, and sometimes a treatment and then sanitation in, in a number of different ways. But there was al always some large infrastructure that, were, that was needed. Where today there is some te some technology that are actually um, 
almost portable technology that can be implemented in a, in a in a much easier way. So I think that's that's probably one of the things that is going to make things easier and and maybe will um, I guess plug the gap between. Um, a more organized development of water in in, uh, in countries, but but it doesn't change the fact that if it's not high on on the priority list of um, of of communities and, and governments, uh, then that's going to be really difficult. I think you know from an Australian perspective, we've got we've got the possibility to um, to support because the water industry in Australia is. Um, is is extremely um, advanced and well organized, and um, so there, there is this possibility to uh, to support. Now, there's also things that we need to do in in the country because the water is not the same everywhere in uh, in in Australia, and there's always um, possibilities to improve the situation, including including from some of our, some of our remote communities. So that raises a perennial question about uh, deploying Australian expertise and experience internationally, which you, you brought up earlier in the conversation. Um, so what developing countries tend to want of Australia is a sense of how we tackled the challenges that we face. They, they're not looking for a blueprint. They're not looking for an off-the-shelf solution because they know their own context is unique. So when you're talking to maybe even some of your staff in Sydney Water who are expressing interest in being involved in, in working in an international development project through the Australian Water Partnership or, or WaterAid, um, what, what advice do you start with about how they should approach understanding the context differences? Um, I think I would start with um, listening uh, because um, we, can't, we can't go to a place and just think that the solutions that we have um, at Sydney Water or elsewhere are going to work. And I think you, you've just said it, it's understanding the context, understanding the culture, is absolutely critical to make it a success. So the, the first advice would really be about listening and and, and trying to contribute without um, imposing solutions because um, the solutions have to be owned by the people in the country. They can't be a solution that is all given or, um, or imposed on, on the people. It really has to be owned by the local um, community. Uh, that's, that's, that's how it, it works. If, if, if it's not the case, it's, not, it's just not a, sol a solution that is going to be sustainable. So uh, that, that would be really the piece of advice, um, listening and, 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 and contribute with, the, with everyone's experience, but without trying to impose a solution that is not going to work if the people don't own it. And sometimes it's hard to, sometimes it's hard to explain to people the importance of considering the non-economic values of water. So uh, value of water, values of, 
invested in water in terms of cultural values, uh, in terms of uh, environmental values. Uh, you know, you're working in a highly competitive commercial environment. How do you how do you make sure that those discussions get space? That's probably the most difficult question, Michael, um, because people will not think about water as anything else than drinking water. And, um, and people will not see that without water, you can't, you can't live in a place, you can't work in a place, you can't, um, you, you can't, yeah, basically you can't live in a place because you need trees, you need, um, you, you need, well, everything. And, and without water, you can't get it. But, but that's really difficult because in the developed um, countries, people don't think about water in that way unless um, they are they work in the uh, agricultural sector, where you know they, they will understand that water is not only for drinking, it's for something else. But even in the in the industry. Um, people will not be thinking about water as, as an essential part of the, the, the production facility. So there's, there's a lot of things that, um, as, as a water industry, we can do to raise the profile of water and, and really put it back where it should be, meaning um, an essential service, an essential product. And it doesn't matter that we live in a, in a developed countries. Water is still as essential as it is as if we would be living in, in a, in a uh, developing country. And, and you know, I, th I think uh, as, as an industry, there is really a, um, a, a communication uh, exercise, endeavor that we, we need to, we ne really need to raise the profile. Yeah, absolutely. And Rock, as you're thinking about all of these challenges, is there one that for you keeps you awake at night as you think about the water for development crisis? Something that keeps you awake at night. And then what is it that keeps your energy and your passion for the water sector? What gives you hope? Look, I, th I think the, what really keeps me awake at night is climate change uh, because it's, it's a massive impact on... Um, on, well, it's a massive impact on the planet and, 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 and a massive impact on the water industry. And we've got, um, we've got, we, we're lucky to be on both sides in the sense that we are heavily impacted by climate change. But at the same time, we've got the possibility also to do a lot to, um, I guess, slow down climate change or, 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 or potentially reverse climate change because, again, water is so essential in the environment that we live in. So it's not only by running our businesses differently, but it's also by giving back the, giving back water its place in the environment. Um, in, in a built environment where there is only concrete and asphalt and glass and, and steel and etc., where water doesn't have a, a space, then you're creating uh, heat islands um, where people can't live. If you put water back in and then you've got green space and then you've got tree canopy, etc., then you create an environment that is much better. And then 
If you do that, then you reduce the need for air conditioning and you reduce the need for this and you reduce the need for that. And, and so we really, as an industry, we've got the possibility to contribute and, and really do something positive for uh, or against climate change. But climate change, I was, I'm talking about climate change because that's a really big issue. But actually water has the possibility to do good things to everything health, education, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what really keeps me, keeps my energy up. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rock. Isn't he brilliant? I find Rock so insightful. Now to our final speaker, Brooke O'Donnell. Brooke is team leader, Aboriginal heritage and native title in the Water Corporation of Western Australia. Brooke is fairly new to the water sector, but her insights are powerful and timely. Over to Brooke. Welcome and so great to have you joining us. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here for the last few days and um, looking really forward to seeing how the rest of the sessions uh, end up. They're so unique and diverse. Um, so I guess just a little bit about me. That would be um, fantastic. Tell us your water story. Yes. How did you come to be here? Well, uh, I actually received an Indigenous Water Leaders Scholarship, which is actually why I'm here with my colleague um, Buck and I, and uh, we work both for the Water Corporation. I've been with the Water Corporation only for 10 months, um, so I'm very, very early. But uh, my whole life I've worked within uh, the state government, uh, formerly as a social worker, to basically look at uh, making positive change with our Aboriginal communities, with people, um, you know, to develop economic uh, advancement and really drive change from a grassroots level. Um, so the Water Corp uh, really came to me when I, I actually also work as a local government councillor, so I'm actually deputy mayor for the city of Calabunda, and really understanding the lay of the land and, you know, from a development perspective, what actually needed to be done in local government sense for getting Aboriginal heritage and native title uh, agreements and, and engagement and what needed to be done. And when I saw uh, the role at the Water Corporation, I said, wow, this, this is like a total, almost like a 360, but also kind of in the same direction uh, because obviously we work with Aboriginal people, with Aboriginal communities, uh, but in a more, well, I guess, develop, I like to think of it as, the positive steps that if we can get this right, then we can actually build upon that social change that I was talking about from not needing to have, you know, the social work, you know, the prisons, et cetera, like that. Um, because, you know, we can work on a holistic level at, at the Water Corp. Uh, like for instance, my role, as I said, we, for any project that needs to happen, be capital works or maintenance, we basically work with looking at the heritage and native title, uh, whether or not there's any impacts. And if there are impacts, then we engage with those particular traditional owners and understand whether or not we need to look at surveys, uh, engaging other stakeholders such as Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage, potentially also having to navigate other stakeholders like lawyers who may not have necessarily had um, governance setups for those Aboriginal areas because they're still waiting for native title. Um, so it does get a really, really tricky. Um, but we make sure that at a holistic level that we, when we're dealing with Aboriginal people that, hey, it's not just saying, hey, I've come to you because I want this. Um, 
it'd be great if if we could actually do it in a in a proactive manner but sometimes that's not possible without work it's like oops a pipe's broken it's in a heritage site we need your help but in return building the engagement having regular the same people working with those same traditional owners so that they can develop some rapport they can have um, you know mutual respect and understanding and, and really have a good solid foundation of you know respect and so i like to think that you know although we come for one purpose we make sure that when we leave that that community is well aware of how we can support them in building their community to realize that economic benefit um, and, and and to understand i guess you know, we share our knowledge about water and in terms they share their stories about water and country and, you know, we really have that mutually uh, beneficial relationship. It's not just take, take, take or give, give, give. It's, you know, we both common, commonly connect. So, so in other words, you, you're saying that the conversation with these communities might start because a native title issue or a heritage management issue has, um, has has sparked the conversation, but what you aim to go into that conversation with and keep that conversation going with is an understanding of the broad aspirations of, of that community, including around the land and water they're living with, um, are responsible for managing and are very much part of um, their identity story. So what are some of the things that you've learnt about uh, communities' relationships with water and have been able to bring back to decision makers and urge them to change the way they, they make decisions to, to make the community aspirations better included? Hmm. Interesting question. I think... I guess the, the, the biggest things that I've picked up on from the large, um, you know, like you said, a heritage issues that have come by way of, you know, it's an emergency, we have a pipeline that's broken and waste is going into a heritage site, which unfortunately happens to be a, a previous massacre site, which, you know, as you can understand, very concerning and, and confronting, uh, you know, understanding that, it's all well and good that we're trying to fix this issue because obviously, you know, we've turned off the pumps and sewerage is floating away and drying into a dry creek bed. Um, we All we want to do is fix that problem and, you know, go back to business as normal. But sometimes uh, you, you forget uh, the simple things like, um, for instance, sorry, sorry, this has happened. Um, let's not worry about who's to blame or why this has happened. We first want to say sorry that this has happened um, but we also want to come up with a plan for the future area that we can provide to those traditional owners because you know there's about five or ten projects in this particular area that I was talking about where there is so much going on and you know we're all working in different areas that we really need to just have that full concept really understand how these projects can connect to each other so that we can try and deliver them in the same time so that we can then come to the traditional owners at one point in time. And it's fine if they want to ask more questions and want us to keep coming back. But um, having to come back and ask the same questions for a different project and, you know, 
that's kind of just really, well, it's in effect disrespecting of the time. You know, we're not the only utilities provider. They have to deal with, you know, mining companies. They have to deal with agriculturalists, local, all the stakeholders that are asking similar things. And, and, and traditional owners tend to be very, very busy people. They are. And, I mean, let's not forget, you know, they've got jobs and families and all these things. So to try and fit in, a, you know, board meetings and things, um, we have to really come with a really well-developed um, concept and plan and have the right people there. Absolutely. I mean, that collaboration's been a real theme that we've come up with, but as you say, collaborating outside just the water sector but with all of those other utilities. One of the... The strong themes through Oswater and through conversation around diversity and inclusion is doing the work, particularly for non-Aboriginal people in the water sector, to do the work to understand um, the strengths of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander practices. What, in from your experience of working in the two worlds, so to speak, what do you think are some of the main things that you see the impact of colonisation on Aboriginal communities now with their experience of water? Um, I think probably the, the main the main issues, well, and, and I guess I say from what we see in, in WA, is the misunderstandings about uses of dams and accesses to the dams for things like, you know, traditional practice or even hunting, obviously, you know, fishing. Uh, some of the dams are great sources of, you know, marin and yabbies and all sorts of um, wonderful things. But I think uh, what has come out of some of the examples that we start working with traditional owners is actually where there is a problem. It's not like we're going to go out and find people. We actually take it as a proactive approach to say, hey, this is what we've noticed. Uh, you know, in some places we have Aboriginal rangers who also work as part of the, the support sort of services to, to sort of get you know, elders to understand what are the issues and how can we address this? You know, is it an issue that we need access? If it's an issue about access, let's talk about how we can do that. Obviously, there are certain things that we can and can't do because obviously things like, you know, um, you know, swimming or, or hunting, you know, could potentially contaminate water, but it's really explaining the, the issues about, you know, water and what can and can't be done and how we can support to maintain those connections to the land in a way that everybody is reasonably happy with. And I think that's probably the, the biggest challenge because we're such a big, as I said, Western Australia is massive. And um, to really be able to have that discussion uh, with everybody, um, for some people it's not issue, uh, for some it is. Uh, but I think slowly uh, we're working out uh, a strategy on how we can try and support um, that relationship. We see a lot in international development work a real demand, a real hunger for um, knowledge and learning around the Australian Indigenous water story. So um, people we are working with in the Pacific, uh, and even parts of Asia, wanting to understand how cultural values in water and water management add to a more holistic and complete and more effective 
and community connected way of making decisions around water management and allocation. Why don't you think Australians talk more to each other about the Indigenous water story and what it can teach us as a nation about managing this resource, which is so scarce here? You know, that I'd like to say I've got all the answers to that question, but I guess I actually had conversations with some of my my local government colleagues literally about, you know, what topics we were going to discuss and what other things were going on. And, and I think it's just we're in such a, I guess, you know, we're in such a fortunate, wealthy country that we have so much going on and that, you know, we just we're fortunate that we have that that privilege that, you know, we can go to our house and we can turn the tap on and that water will come out. Uh, I think so, when I was in one of the talks yesterday and they talked about about that understanding about how we value water because it's there, it, it's totally okay. It, take 15, 20, one-hour showers uh, because that's how it is. But, you know, that cultural understanding of how, you know, in a, in a third-world country where some person has to work, you know, walk for hours and, and have a rusty pipe and boil away for hours so they actually have healthy water. Um, that that does cause, you know, concern for me, me as a parent. Um, I think that that is, you know, something that I've sort of taken from this conference that actually, you know, my children, um, that we have that obligation to support them in understanding the issues about water and and cultural significance and also just about the need to to preserve and and, and protect it because uh, otherwise you know we are going to be <laughs> faced in a problem in the you know in the in the future that uh, you know we don't want to burden our future generations with you know um, yeah I, I know that doesn't fully fully answer that question but it's just yeah I think it's just that perspective of of privilege that that's what it is yeah and and i guess seeing water not just as a just not as an economic resource and a human need but but actually a cultural and spiritual need and i wonder whether that's what um that's one of the key lessons that uh, aboriginal australia can teach the rest of us as we think about the water for development crisis, what is it that keeps you awake at night that you're worrying about and what gives you hope? Um, I think in WA um, probably the, the, extreme, the extreme weather events and, and, you know, being concerned, you know, particularly from my area, we have, you know, water concerns, but we also have huge bushfire issues and, you know, really, and also compacted by living in a very urbanised area where we are trying to rebuild tree canopy whilst trying to develop, uh, really trying to, I guess, work within the planning framework, which is slowly but surely changing. Um, but but that that is something that um, you know we well, I guess I I frequently you know get concerned about about the future needs for our young children you know where are they going to live and you know how are they going to be and you know what is that temperature going to be look 
looking like and you know when our universities tell us that you know if we don't do anything the temperature is going to go eight to ten degrees and you're already 40 or 40 or 42 degrees and you just think I don't know what's going to happen are my kids or my grandkids or my great grandkids you know how are they going to deal with that and you know how is my mum who will then be probably you know 80 90 years old how will she deal with those things and it's that I think it's that real emotive pull about health and well-being and the connection to you know that balance of you know water trees um, nature environment but also trying to to balance that by doing what you think is right uh, with the best knowledge that you have at that point um, but trying to balance that against what you know is the future needs of future generations so it's yeah that that's the big <laughs> the big <laughs> there's about 50 problems in there but that's that's the big problem that that I um, lay away with because yeah we're only 15 minutes from the city and we have we have um, yeah very large um, changing from agricultural large blocks to, to smaller blocks in development and making sure that every person has access to to their needs for you know optimum well-being. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you thank very you. much and I've enjoyed every moment of it. That was Brooke O'Donnell, and that brings us to the end of our Oswater journey. It's been a privilege to steward us through the conference, along with our outstanding hosts, Michael Wilson and Rosie Ween. We'd love to hear your main takeaways from the conference. I hope you feel as though you were a part of the conversations at Oswater without having to be at the conference. But in saying that, if the opportunity arises for you to attend the conference in future, I highly suggest you do. It's pretty special. Please jump on the social media links in the episode show notes and let us know your thoughts. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for an exciting Goodwill Hunters update in the coming weeks.